Well, I hesitated to preach on this Isaiah text because it's a musical. And across my life, I have discovered there are two kinds of people. There are people who love musicals. And there are people who have to go to musicals. <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell recently told a story of how uh, she, tried, she convinced David Bowie to go with her to see Rent on Broadway. Uh, and they were out to dinner. She said, we're going to see Rent. He said, I don't think so. She said, come on, it's getting rave reviews. So they went, and she said about 20 minutes in, he leaned over to her and said, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and then uh, she said, oh, come on, man. And then he said, kill you. <laughs> Love musicals or hate them. Isaiah gives us a musical today. Chapter 35, verse 1, breaks through the pages with startling disruption, like a major key breaking in where you had only been hearing a dirge, and then you kind of gotten comfortable with that dirge. The preceding chapter prophesies imminent judgment against the surrounding nations of Judah. Now, Judah remains in exile. God's people, they're, they're still bearing the consequences of their, their faithlessness, their legislation without compassion, their economics without humanity, their worship without heart. But now Isaiah announces a reversal of circumstances where Judah will be freed and to go back home, but now Judah's surrounding nations uh, will receive their comeuppance. The bodies of Judah's enemies will scatter the ground and the stench will extend for miles. Verse after foreboding verse tells of blood-sated swords and blood-soaked ground, streams drying up, soil turning to sulfur. There will be no escape from smoldering piles of debris. What used to be well-appointed homes will be, become havens for jackals. It's all too much, really. Chapter after chapter of this, one's liable to just shut the Bible up and say, you know what, another time, maybe. But sit with this section of Isaiah long enough, and God becomes more like Anton Sugar, the villain in Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. Pure meanness. Notably, in the movie based on McCarthy's novel, there's no soundtrack. Virtual silence accompanies Sugar as he pursues the antagonist Llewellyn with ruthless focus. Now imagine someone randomly inserting into this chilly and unsettling silence of the horror movie a scene from The Sound of Music. Yet here in Isaiah 35, that's exactly what happens. Out of the blood and the fire, out of the smoky mist and the melancholy comes Julie Andrews in a sundress, eyes lifted heavenward, singing of the blossoming crocus and the glory and majesty of God. The hills are alive with the sound of music. 
Then the fog lifts on a holy highway leading home. Sunlight kisses the skin. And I had to chuckle when I read in my annotated Bible a little note for for this part of Isaiah, this chapter of Isaiah said, this likely doesn't belong here. (laughs) Uh, According to this scholar, somewhere along the way, a couple of scribes said, man, this is a bummer. Let's do a little cutting and pasting. However, Isaiah 35 got where it is. It has the effect of breaking the fourth wall. In the theater, the fourth wall is that invisible line between the performers, the actors, and the audience. You have the walls of the stage, but then this wall is open. It's an invisible wall. And across this wall, on one side of that line, the performers agree to pretend the audience isn't there. And then on the other side of that line, the audience agrees to suspend disbelief and pretend that the actors don't know they're there. Fourth wall is really what makes the stage a stage. But the fourth wall, as we know from Shakespeare, was meant to be broken. Think of the opening of Fiddler on the Roof when Tevye turns to the audience in his humble village to explain why there's a fiddler on his roof. And as the fiddler plays a tune, he says, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you, I don't know. It's tradition. He's looking and winking into the camera the whole time or into the audience. 25 years ago, the composer-conductor Donald McCullough, together with writer Denny Clark, broke the fourth wall with the world premiere of what they entitled the Holocaust Cantata. Now, those are two words that I would have never put together. It's a series of hymns and testimonies created Uh, from the stories of Holocaust victims and survivors. As it turns out, the Holocaust was also a place where the Jews kept their traditions. And under unimaginable suffering and circumstances, they still told their stories and sang often under their breath when it could have cost them their life How did the survivors survive? Much of their survival was tied to their tradition of enduring oppression with singing. And after studying the archives of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., McCullough and Clark, I can imagine them turning and looking to the whole world and winking and saying, there's more to the story. There's singing here. When the Master Chorale of Washington eventually performed this at Duke Chapel, the director of the choral music program said, our audience sat in stunned silence at the end, which seemed the only appropriate response. Many other reviews said that they consistently felt it was the most meaningful musical experience of their lives. Stunned silence, awe, laughter, smiling, joy, welling up from seemingly nowhere or welling up from seemingly the deepest, the depths of deepest darkness. 
This is Isaiah 35. The gravitational pull downward releases and we float up four feet above the ground, lifted by a rush of joy and awe and stillness. Just when we've convinced, we're convinced that the minor key is just going to dictate the rest of our lives. Joy and all break through. A choir that has no business being here at this point in the prophet's telling enters stage right. And I don't know where stage right is, and I'm sorry. I think it's this way, but it might be this way. <laughs> Someone's pointing this way. Okay, but this choir doesn't belong here. And with hopeful lyrics and good news on their lips, they sing then what had been ashen coals begin to glow and flame. And before we even get to the grand finale, Isaiah foreshadows a vision where human beings and land are together restored. Weak hands and knees are strong again. And where the sand was too hot to walk upon, now there's a pool. Isaiah's prophecy corresponds with Ezekiel's vision of dry bones, you remember, taking on flesh and sinews and breath and rattling together into new life. But with Isaiah, the technicolor dream encompasses both human beings and creation. My friends, Rick and Tracy, were grieving the death of their 33-year-old son, Adam, from cancer in 2005. Rick, a preeminent scholar of preaching, came to the end of words. And in his memoir about his son Adam called Stations of the Heart, he tells of the long duration of sadness that he and his family endured for months upon months after they said goodbye. Each member of the family grieved in their own way. And he said one evening they were in their cottage on Emerald Isle and gathered around the television when the ice began to thaw. And for the first time, they began to laugh again and to laugh together. Of all the movies it could have been, he said, it was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. A couple millennia ago, in a working class living room, two women, one named Elizabeth and one named Mary, broke out into song. And Mary stands up from the couch and begins to belt out, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she's singing so loudly that her voice carries through the village, and people are leaning out their windows and cracking their doors and saying, What on earth is going on down at Elizabeth's house? We've been waiting so long centuries for Messiah to come, and here she's singing of the promise fulfilled, and it's just a matter of time. Here's what we know. 
the exile will end. And restoration will come. And joy will break through. We're not always there yet, but the author of the play has just turned to look at all of us in the eye and wink across the fourth wall. The end of the script is already written, he says. Comedy will circumvent tragedy and overwhelm us with laughter. Joy will break through and our mourning will turn into dancing. What do we do, though, during this long intermission? Well, we wait. And we hope. And we sing. We'll begin with a spin Traveling in the world of my creation What we'll see will defy explanation